I'm Maureen Milliken. And I'm Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Yes. I guess we should get going. We have a lot to do. This probably isn't an update, but just kind of a quick little note to make. Somebody who's been in many of our episodes, <laughs> Steve As McCoslin, a character, yes. right, the spokesman for the Maine Department of Public Safety, the Maine State Police, for more than 30 years, retired on June 30th. He says his most memorable case was the disappearance of Ayla Reynolds, yes. which is our episode three. He'd been doing it for 32 years, and he is somebody in journalism in Maine, I can tell you, he is a part of every reporter's life. <laughs> Yes. Yes. He has been in pretty much any episode of ours that was a main crime that's happened yes. in the last 30 years. Yes. And so yeah. we wish him well. It'll be interesting yes. to see who they get to replace him. Yeah. And, um, do you have a story for us today? I do. And you don't even know what it is. No, I don't. I'm I'm excited to find out, or I'm excited about finding out. I hate it. When I like it when um I like it when you don't. Oh no! I know we do that a lot. That the other person doesn't know to surprise them. Because we hate each other, and we only talk when we. Or record, it helps with so our, spontaneous, our spontaneous, our spontaneous. <laughs> Actually, we talk by ejaculation. Yes, I, I, when I worked like in the eighties, there's this old timey reporter, Tom Vardabedian. Granted, decades and decades ago, ejaculated was like a yes. word for if you say something excitedly. So Exclaimed, he used to, yeah. So he used to have that in his stories, like blah blah blah, he ejaculated and we would just laugh and laugh <laughs> and laugh. That reminds me of I've been reading with Hannah. I read aloud to her, even though she is perfectly capable of reading herself. Because Dan's always like, Why are you reading she to her? Why don't you just have her time. read? Well, it's fun to read. So we've been reading Anne of Green Gables, which was written about a hundred years a little over a hundred years ago, and used that in the first time someone ejaculated Hannah's like, Mom! <laughs> it's funny, at nine she knows what that means. Well, she would... has, um, you know... And books. fun fact, like Liz and I, when Facts we were teenagers, used to read to each other. You know, when we were teenagers and stuff. Yes. You know, I like being read. Anyways, that's but beyond... So, let me get on with my story. Yeah. Okay, I decided to do this case because I saw something in the news recently Ooh. about it, and I was reminded of the main part of this, the main as in the main, the state can I portion play, of the story. Can I play the main theme song just because we haven't played it in a while, even though this is a main mini? Um, okay. Our listeners might be annoyed, but if you want it's, it's to. It's just a few seconds and it'll it's be It's not over. really a main mini, though. And no, it's not, but we haven't played oh, the main okay. song okay, in a yeah, while. Play so, it. Okay, okay. Yay, thank you for playing that. Uh -oh. um, okay. <laughs> it needed to be done. So this case, it's one of those old ones. It's from the 90s, mid-90s, so it was Ooh. hard to find stuff online. And because of this COVID crap, I can't <laughs> go to the library and look on microphones, just so you know. So I got, I use mostly court records from the state of New Jersey. Um, the Bangor Daily News Archives online, the Associated Press, and Forensic Files, Ooh. Season 6, Episode 26, 
called Double Trouble. Oh, I that was one of my resources. The Forensic Files one was right. It was like 2001, right after this person went to to, uh, trial. So it didn't end. I'll I'll talk about that at the uh, end. On the evening of Monday, April 3rd, 1995, State Trooper Vicki Gardner, an 11 oh, yes, year veteran of the main state police, <laughs> it's just like name that tune, I know. <laughs> was off duty driving home in her police cruiser on Interstate 95. It's funny because none of the stories I read and none of the court cases said whether she was going north or south, but then when I watched Forensic Files, they said she was driving south. For some reason, I always pictured her driving north. I don't Me know too. why. It doesn't Me really too. matter, but, but she was driving south. Uh, according to Forensic Files, which you never know whether it's right or wrong because things there were a couple things wrong. She had been visiting her parents and wasn't wearing her uniform. State troopers have use of their cruisers while off duty and often they park them at their house and stuff we've talked about that in other shows that they a lot of times they have their cars even when they're not on duty in maine Uh, i don't know what other states are like but depending on the source she either saw a car make a u-turn in front of her or she noticed a car parked on the uh, i'm sorry where on 95 was this pittsfield which is north of waterville it's in between waterville Waterville and Bangor. bangor yeah so she either, one article said she saw a car make a U-turn. All the other ones just said she saw a car facing the wrong way, parked on the shoulder. So she pulled over to see what was up. She found Stephen Fortin, who was described by one newspaper as a handyman, <laughs> in in the car. He told Vicky, and this is again, different sources say different things. He either told her he was lost or he was having mechanical trouble. She asked for his license, registration, proof of insurance. He could only show her a New Jersey driver's permit. He had no registration and no insurance card. Trooper Gardner smelled alcohol on Stephen's breath and asked him to get out of the car. She told him to take a seat in the passenger side of the police car. Fortin was a little wobbly on his walk to her car, so Vicky gave him a bunch of tests to gauge his level of drunkenness. He failed conclusively, so she started the process of issuing a summons for operating under the influence, along with other violations, no insurance, no registration, no license. Vicky had contacted state police headquarters to request backup. Another off-duty officer was supposed to be on the way to help. I think it's because of budgetary reasons why they, first of all, they're would patrol the highway themselves and she wasn't patrolling that day but i don't know why the other officer was off duty too there must have been well, someone on duty but I, maybe I remember he, they patrol along a huge right, stretch of back, a highway that may have been back at the time when there was like one cruiser like one cruiser at night north of augusta or north of waterville yes. or whatever for, yeah and i mean it's a long and, and they go all the way up to holton and down so right. the, it's it's a long stretch so i don't know why they don't explain yeah, maybe i could have found out more if i could have Cotton well, better, whatever. Trooper Gardner stayed in the car with Stephen in the seat next to her as she finished up the paperwork. She had no reason to believe he was dangerous, just another drunk driver. I can only guess he had been fairly compliant and non-confrontational up to that point because she didn't sense any danger, and she had been a cop for 11 years. She wasn't an idiot. Almost an hour had passed since Vicky had radioed for backup. As the two sat in the car, I can only imagine how fun it must have been <laughs> to sit there with the guy for an hour waiting for your fucking backup. Anyway, uh, as they sat waiting, Stephen said he had a proposition for Vicky. Uh-oh. Trooper Gardner said, fine, she'd listen, but first she was issuing the summonses and he would have to post bail because he was from out of state, meaning he would be arrested and go to jail. Fortin suggested she just let him, quote, get in the car and drive away and pretend nothing ever happened, end quote. Vicky said nope, and she reiterated that these were serious charges and he would be arrested. 
She went back to her paperwork. So that was his proposition? Proposition. No, I said so what that... What did I say? And no, I'm saying so that was his proposition? I mean, I'm remarking that, that, that it she, wasn't really much of a... She, well, I couldn't think of the word. No! Oh my Which god! Like, you, you are not understanding. <laughs> I'm... I'm making a, a, a <laughs> remark indicating that I thought it's a pretty shitty proposition and he was a moron for her thinking she'd go for it. But I was just like, so that was his proposition? Yes. Do you get what I'm saying? Yes, just let me go. After you've radioed for backup, right. yeah, just go, right. just go and pretend nothing happened. Right. As she was stealing the results of one of the sobriety tests, Stephen grabbed Vicky by the neck and slammed her head Ow. into the... Oh. Into the part of the car between the front and back windows. They kept calling it a, do a door post, but I'm assuming it's between the two windows, that solid part. She was knocked unconscious, and she awoke to find his hands were around her throat strangling her. Ah. Or choking her, as one as people kept calling but it. But as we know, as she accurately, tried it's strangling, not choking. I know. I thought of you when I changed it to strangling. As she tried to fight him off, she went in and out of consciousness. When she woke up again, she was lying sideways on the front seat of the cruiser with her head jammed up against the passenger door. She was naked from the waist down and her shirt was pulled up to expose her chest. Oh. One eye was swollen shut and she couldn't see out of the other eye because her face was so bloody. Her nose was badly broken. The damage was so great that her nose had to be surgically reattached to her face. Oh, God. Stephen Fortin had bitten Trooper Gardner on the chin, her left nipple, and on the side of her left breast. As the backup trooper finally arrived, Stephen drove off in the cruiser with Vicky. As he sped up the highway, Vicky managed to open the passenger door and hung out of it, dragging a bit before allowing herself to drop into the road. Ugh. She friggin' she wow. fought for her life. Yeah. Fortin sped off and crashed the cruiser. He was later arrested hiding in the bathroom of a rest stop on I-95. Huh? A medical exam by Dr. Lawrence Ritchie found that Trooper Gardner had severe, significant injuries to her vagina and anus. She had vaginal lacerations and bruising and a tear from her anal opening up into her rectum. Uh. Dr. Ritchie determined that her injuries indicated she had been penetrated by fingers or a fist. When Vicky was interviewed by investigators, she told them she remembered Fort and causing a lot of pain when he forced his fingers into her vagina. She didn't recall any penetration to her anus. Later, the paperwork and breath tests that Vicki Gardner had given Fortin were recovered from the roadside where the car had crashed. Stephen Fortin's alcohol level was 0.15, almost twice the legal limit, which is 0.08. Vicki's nylon running pants were found in the cruiser, her underpants still inside them. On June 15, 1995, the day before he was to go before the grand jury, Stephen Fortin pled guilty to aggravated assault, attempted gross sexual assault, unlawful sexual contact, robbery, eluding a police officer, assault on a police officer, operating a motor vehicle while under the influence of intoxicating liquor, and theft by unauthorized taking. So it didn't take too long. It was like two months later he pled guilty. I think there was a reason why he did David Crook was the district attorney for Kennebec and <laughs> oh, yeah, Somerset Counties. I like David Crook. He's been in some Yes, he's been in a couple. The judge was Justice Donald Alexander... I think he's the one from the Albert Flick episode that thought that Albert Flick was too old. I might be wrong. In Kennebec County Superior Court that day, D.A. Crook recommended a sentence of 20 years, which was the maximum penalty. The sentencing was put off until later in the summer or fall in order for a psychiatric test to be conducted. The guilty plea relieved Vicki Gardner of the obligation to testify. D.A. Crook said, quote, I have no desire to have Vicki be required to testify in any proceeding regarding the personal side of her attack. 
The DA also had Gardner's affidavit impounded, as well as photographs of her injuries. At the time, Fortin's lawyer, Dale Thistle, said that his client's mental health exams would be studied to see if there were any, quote, major mental health concerns, mm. which would allow him to contest some of Stevens' guilty pleas. But, Thistle told the Bangor Daily News, any defense based on not guilty by reason of insanity is a long shot. Of Fortin, David Crook said, quote, This man is not insane. He may have done insane things, which rational people cannot comprehend, but he is not a psychopath or a sociopath or antisocial. This is a person who should never, never be released. According to David Crook, Stephen Fortin told police that trooper Vicki Gardner had wanted him to have sex with her hmm. and she would let him go. That's plausible. He only beat her because she kept coming on to him. <laughs> Are you fucking serious? Yeah. I was like, Poor oh. Guy. Jesus Christ. Come on. The police were probably like, out of here. David Crook told the Bangor Daily News, this is absolutely overwhelming. This man is an animal. <laughs> Sorry, I, you like my David Crook yeah, I impersonation? Do, I do, He's in that Forensic Files a lot. And I didn't watch Forensic Files until after I'd written all this, and then I watched it to see if there was anything. I've seen that Forensic Files a couple times. In November of 1995, Justice Alexander sentenced Stephen Fortin to 20 years in jail. Fortin was found to be legally sane. The psychiatric evaluation showed that, according to D.A. Crook, this is what D.A. Crook said, that Stephen Fortin, quote, was sound as a dollar. He's anti-sociopathic. He's a cold-blooded killer. Vicky is lucky to be alive. And I don't exactly agree with all of that, but two out of four right, I do agree yeah. with. I think he, I think he is fucking sociopathic and a cold-blooded killer. Yes. But she is lucky to be alive. Yeah. David Crook said that he and Trooper Gardner had agreed to the plea agreement. He said, both Vicky and I recognized that there was no punishment great enough to be imposed, but we also realized that 20 years was all we could get under main sentencing laws. And besides, Crook and Vicky Gardner and Justice Alexander and everyone else knew that Steve Fortin would probably not spend much time in Thomaston Prison in Maine, which he was going to go to back then. Not anymore, because it's oh, gone. Because it's because Stephen Fortin's story is not over yet. Ooh. Shortly after Fortin's arrest, but before his plea deal, Maine authorities contacted his last known place of residence, Woodbridge, New Jersey. They were trying to gather information about Fortin's background. Fortin was known to police having gotten in a few scrapes. But when Maine police shared the details of his attack on Trooper Gardner, their ears really pricked up. Woodbridge Township, New Jersey, had an unsolved murder from August of 1994. The murder of Melissa Padilla, who was raped, beaten, strangled to death, and left in a concrete construction pipe. When New Jersey police heard the details of Vicki Gardner's attack, they knew they had to come to Maine and talk to Stephen Fortin. They didn't waste time. On April 24, 1995, two detectives from Woodbridge came to Skowhegan, Maine to interview Stephen. Fortin was apparently happy for the company because he talked to the detectives for over two hours, having waived his Miranda rights. The reason the Woodbridge police were so hot to interview Stephen Fortin was because Melissa Padilla had suffered almost identical injuries as Vicki Gardner, except Melissa ended up dead. On the night of August 11, 1994, which was the day before my wedding, oh, August wow. 12, 1994, I got oh, married. Wow. Oh. That day, poor Melissa, I was baking my wedding cake. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Melissa Padilla left her room at the Gem Hotel in Avenel, New Jersey, which is a town in Woodbridge Township, at about 11 p.m. She was going to walk to the Quick Check, a convenience store, to buy some goodies for her four children. Aww. Melissa, 23 years old, or 25, depending on the source, lived at the hotel with her kids, ages 2 through 5 years old, and her boyfriend, Hector Fernandez. They were living there temporarily. They were receiving public assistance. A social service agency had found them housing at the motel. The quick check was at the corner of U.S. Route 1 and Avenel Street, and still is, because I checked Google Maps to see if it was still there. Melissa had to walk on a dirt path that ran along the side of the highway on her way to the store. At 11.29 p.m., a security camera at the store recorded her buying iced tea, pizza, bread, three sandwiches, a candy bar, and coffee using a $20 bill. She got 66 cents and change. Melissa never came home to her room at the Gem Motel. Hector was worried and set out to find her with a few helpers. This search committee included Hector, two young sons of the motel desk clerk, Christopher, age 11, and Antoine, 5. Why were they up so late? I don't know. It was Thursday night. Well, it was summer. It was summer, yeah. yeah. Hector's friend Trent Eubanks, who was also staying at the Gem, went along also. Antoine, the five-year-old, was the one who found Melissa's body. I know. She was about 500 feet from the hotel inside a 30-inch diameter concrete pipe. There were four of these pipes along her path. And on the forensic files, it was helpful to watch that because they showed the pipes. They're just, you know, those big giant concrete pipes. And they were just like there on the, you know, four in a row. Yeah. Yeah. But they weren't being used as a culvert. They must have been for some construction thing. Right. I mean, it's a gross area. It's like, you know, a bunch of... I can picture it on forensic files. The police arrived around 1 a.m. By then, Hector had pulled Melissa's body out of the construction pipe. Mm. According to police, when they arrived, they found Hector and Trent standing near Melissa's body, which was naked from the waist down. The county medical examiner had come to the crime scene and announced Melissa Padilla dead at 1.06 a.m. When crime scene investigators arrived, they found Melissa's face beaten and bloodied, her shirt, arms, and hands soaked and coated with blood. There was a pool of blood inside the pipe, ugh, which they show on that front. Yeah. That was the thing about forensic files, actually seeing everything. It was like, ugh. There was a pool of blood inside the pipe and a bloody trail from where her boyfriend and his friend had pulled her out of the pipe. Blood spatter inside the pipe suggested the assault had taken place there. There was no money or jewelry on the ground or around Melissa's body, but not too far away, investigators found an earring, a bloody dollar bill, and a receipt from the quick check. The food she bought was scattered around, including three sandwich containers, one of them empty. Mm. The half-eaten sandwich was found a couple streets away. Melissa's shorts with her underpants inside were found in a shrub near where the half-eaten sandwich was found. No fingerprints other than Melissa's were found. The next day, Dr. Marvin Schuster, the medical examiner, conducted an autopsy on Melissa's body. Her injuries included a bruising to her face, a broken nose, bruises on her chest, lacerations on her chin and left breast that were possibly bite marked. Melissa had rectal tearing that indicated forceful penetration by a finger, penis, or some kind of object. The medical examiner did not observe any injury to the vagina. Dr. Schuster found, quote, few and scattered sperma ooze. Sperm. I can never say that word right. Spermatozoa. 
on the vagina and no semen on Melissa's body. From this evidence and the fact that there were no apparent vaginal injuries, he thought it unlikely she had been vaginally assaulted. And they go into that spermatozoa later in the court documents. I didn't really get into it, but the fact that there were so few and they weren't intact, they were kind of like just sperm heads or something. Mm-hmm. There was a bunch of stuff in the trial to show that they were probably old, so she wasn't raped, uh, oh, or yeah. at least not in that way. They didn't match her boyfriends. I don't really know what her background was. She, they tried to drag her through the mud, of course, figuratively, mm-hmm. um, and saying she was a drug dealer and stuff like that. So she could have been a, some kind of sex worker, drug dealer. We don't know. It's not really relevant. Melissa's facial injuries were caused by blunt force trauma, along with her face scraping on the surface of the concrete pipe. Ugh. Melissa's hyoid bone was fractured, her windpipe had hemorrhaged, and she had abrasions on her neck, indicating she had been strangled. The conclusion from Dr. Schuster was that the cause of death was asphyxiation, and Melissa had been anally raped and beaten prior to her death. At the time of Melissa's murder, Stephen Fortin was living not far from Melissa Padilla. He lived north of the Quick Check at the Douglas Motel on Route 1 in Woodbridge. His girlfriend, Dawn Archer, lived there with him. And there's a bunch of those you know, motels that people live at. They have this, we have them in this on Route 1 too, in like South Portland. Earlier that evening, Stephen and Don went to a friend's apartment on the other side of Route 1, a bit less than a mile away. On their way to their friend, Charles Bennett's place, Don and Stephen stopped at the quick check to buy cigarettes. They got to Charles' apartment at about 9 p.m. The three of them got drunk and eventually, according to Don, she and Stephen got into a fight and Charles asked them to leave. Charles later told police he never saw an argument between the two. A bit before 10.30, the couple left Charles Bennett's apartment, still fighting. They continued the argument as they walked. Eventually, Stephen grabbed Dawn by the neck and started to strangle her. He threw her to the ground. Dawn ran into the closest business, a restaurant called Bud's Hut, yelling for help. And on the forensic files, they show up. Bud's Hut is like right next to the gem. It's either close or right near the gem hotel because both the signs are like right there. At 10.32, police responded responding to a call at Bud's Hut found Dawn in the parking lot. She was drunk, her face beaten, she had a bloody nose. She told the cop that Stephen Fort and her boyfriend had assaulted her, but she refused to sign a complaint against Fort and, and when police took her to the hospital she refused treatment. And back then, I guess, and maybe it depends on where you live, someone could decline to press charges with domestic assault. Yeah. I don't think that's still the case. In no, there, they've but started to change it. it back then, it I, was everywhere. But I know in Portland, well, in Portland, even in the mid in the 80s, in Portland, Maine, they had a policy where one of them would be taken by the police. I think it was mainly to separate them because we had neighbors that fought and they would be fighting right. and one of them but would then, call the police. But then yeah. subsequently, you can drop the charges. Yes. And they started yes, changing that in recent years because domestic violence victims tend to drop charges. for. Yes, because they're coerced. Yeah. Charles Bennett reported that Steve Fortin showed up at his apartment around 11.15 p.m. looking for his girlfriend Dawn. Charles said that Stephen had some scratches on his leg, none on his face. Stephen told Charles he got the scratches in a quote, fight with Dawn. And I put the word fight in quotes because it wasn't a fight. He was beating her up. Domestic abusers love to say it's a fight when it's not a fight. Stephen Fortin left his friend's place minutes later. His walk back home to the Douglas Motel would have had him cross paths with Melissa Padilla's walk back to the Gem Hotel at 11.30. The next day, August 12th, my wedding day, mm. sorry, Stephen met his friend Ron Sellis at a diner. He told Ron he was having woman problems and seemed upset. 
Ron noticed that Stephen had scratches on his face. Stephen said he got the scratches while walking through the woods. <laughs> on August 13th, Don and Stephen made up. Don also noticed scratches, not only on his face, but his chest and arms. Not long after that, Don and Stephen left New Jersey and traveled around couch surfing and staying with friends. They spent time in Maine visiting his family, Stephen Fortin's from Brewer, Maine, mm. which is near Bangor. Yep. Right across the river. Mm -hmm. Don's family is from Massachusetts. It was there in Massachusetts while visiting her father that Stephen attacked her again and they broke up. Of course, at the time of Melissa's murder, Stephen Fortin wasn't even on the cops' radar as a suspect. They had so little evidence and no witnesses. They questioned and checked fingerprints of convicted sex offenders in the Woodbridge area, but got no leads and then hit a wall by April of 1995 when they were contacted by Maine State Police. And something that I didn't find in my reading, but on the forensic files, they said that there was a prison in Woodbridge Township for sex offenders, and apparently when they got out of prison, a lot of them lived around there, so the mm. cops were like, oh my God, who yeah. could it be? They also said on forensic files she had skin under her fingernails, but the DNA was inconclusive back then. And yeah. we'll get back to that later. Yeah. But once the Woodbridge police heard about the attack on Vicki Gardner, they didn't think the similarities could be a coincidence. The two crimes must have been committed by the same man. When Woodbridge police showed up in Skowhegan in April of 1995, which, as I by said, the way, in Skowhegan is where Somerset County Jail is, which is why yes. they'd be going to Skowhegan. That's right. As I said, Stephen Fortin had no problem talking to them. He admitted that he had lived in Woodbridge the previous August, and he had heard of Melissa's murder. He said he'd read it in the newspaper. Mm. When the cops asked him about the similar injuries in the two crimes, the biting on the chin and the breast, the strangulation, Stephen said, quote, if the evidence shows I did it, it would probably be the reason, and I must have been involved. But then he said, I'm not admitting anything. If the proof shows I did it, then I must have done it. I don't recall. <laughs> After that, he just kept telling the cops he couldn't remember anything. None of the physical evidence pointed to Stephen, but none ruled him out either. There was a pubic hair on Melissa's body that didn't match her or Hector, her boyfriend, or Stephen. The blood on the dollar bill was not Stephen's. I think it was Melissa's. Saliva found on a cigarette butt was inconclusive as DNA evidence, as were the spermatozoa. Remember, this was 25 years ago. DNA testing was in its infancy back then and has come a long way. I'll talk about the DNA later, but I don't know. There's a couple mentions of DNA match, but there's no mention that they did further tests. So I don't really know. We'll talk about it later. Stephen Fortin was first tried in 2000 and sentenced in February 2001. During the first trial, the prosecution successfully argued to have his conviction for the attack on Vicki Gardner presented as proof of a modus operandi, mm. which means, I mean, anyone listening to a true crime podcast. Of, yeah. Yeah, like that he did the same, you know, he did a lot of things the same way. An expert witness, Robert Hazelwood, testified to similarities of the crimes. And he was also on forensic files. Like, the biting on the chin especially was something that Robert Hazelwood said he had never seen before. He had never seen somebody else doing it. They were just so similar. Hazelwood and other profiling experts testified that Stephen Fortin was a ritualistic killer and listed at least 15 similarities between the attack on Vicki Gardner and the murder Melissa Padilla. And I think the reason they did that was because they, they didn't have any evidence. I mean, the reason right. the prosecution did that. The jury had special instructions to only look at the evidence of the similarities and not conclude because of his prior convictions that Stephen Fortin was a bad person and therefore likely to commit the crime. So, meaning... 
They were supposed to only look at the evidence, not say, oh, well, he did it before, so he probably did it this time. He had to look at, that was the only way they were, the judge allowed that into the into the trial. Also, Dr. Lowell Levine, an expert on forensic odontology, <laughs> testified, which is... Which is he, now considered junk science. Yes. Although it's not just bite marks. He also looks at dental records. I'm just saying. Right. Testified the bite marks on Melissa's chest match Stevens with a high probability. And they on the forensic files, they have a big thing about, you know, making molds and showing right. and making molds. Which and all is that all stuff. now considered. Yes. 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 The defense's expert witness, Dr. Norman Sperber, <laughs> testified that bite mark analysis was an imprecise science, which a lot of people agree with him now. Stephen Foran was sentenced to death. Well, he was convicted, obviously, and sentenced to death in February 2001. Trooper Vicki Gardner told the Bangor Daily News at the time, This closes a chapter for me. It is final. There's no next step. DA David Crook said, I have personally been opposed to the death penalty, but if there's anyone that qualifies, it is Stephen Ford. They always I don't say think, that. I don't think I can be joyful, but the son of a bitch deserved it. <laughs> I have to say about David Crook, he's great for quotes. Good quotes, yeah. Bill Maselli, my former boss, was obsessed with him. Mm, so. Interesting. This first conviction was overturned by the New Jersey Supreme Court because they decided the judge in the first trial did not question the jury enough about whether the evidence about Vicki Gardner's attack had unfairly prejudiced them. Stephen Fortin went to trial again in December 2007 and was convicted a second time. At this trial, the Vicki Gardner attack was also allowed. The sentencing was not to take place until January 2008. In the time between the two court proceedings, the state of New Jersey abolished the death penalty. After some legal wrangling between the courts and finally the state Supreme Court, Stephen Fortin was sentenced to life without parole in 2010, 15 years after the murder. There was so much back and forth. I was just like, ugh, I wasn't gonna... Like I said, one of my sources was the court documents. Oh, God. Oh, those are brutal. At his sentencing, Desiree Padilla, now 17 told Fortin, I was never able to kiss her goodbye. I have no memories of my mother, but I have a place in my heart for her. May you live with the guilt of killing my mm. mother for the rest of your miserable life. Yeah, see, it's, he doesn't care. guys like them don't give a shit. Yeah. Stephen Fortin continues his quest for a new trial. Once in 2015, when he tried to argue that the sentence of life without parole was unconstitutional, and that his girlfriend Dawn and some of the expert witnesses shouldn't have been allowed to testify because they were irrelevant to the case. He lost that one, obviously. Mm. The most recent one was the one that reminded me of this case. It was June 23rd, 2020. The Associated Press reported that on June 21st, Stephen Fortin's latest bid for a new trial was shot down. In this one, he argued that since bite mark evidence was such a prominent part of the prosecution's case, and now it's been discredited, he should get a new trial. The three-judge panel said, nope. Oh, and one thing that wasn't allowed at the trial was that Stephen Fortin stabbed his older brother to death in 1983. Oh. He served 27 months in prison in New Jersey. He had been sentenced to seven years, and he was paroled early. Mm. I'll end with something D.A. David Crook said after Stephen Fortin's 1995 conviction for his attack on Vicki Gardner. The irony is that this New Jersey murder probably would have gone unsolved if not for the attack upon Vicky. The attack on Vicky resulted in a nationwide request for information on this guy and the similarity in criminal behavior because of the bizarreness of the crime. New Jersey called us back and since then we have determined that bite marks in the New Jersey victim match Mr. Fortin. DNA in the New Jersey case match Mr. Fortin. End quote. And actually I'll not end it with that because he said that about DNA. Right. And I read that somewhere else. 
But I haven't really seen anything that says there were more DNA research it, conducted. It must and it, it must yeah. just not have been in the articles. Because I can't well, imagine that they wouldn't have... For the, the retrial. Right. Yeah. It, is DNA science progressed? Especially as bite mark forensics yes. became more and more questioned that they yes. wouldn't go with the DNA. And now, you know, you can get the DNA, depending on what yes. they saved, if he, yes. if you bite someone. Exactly. Well, no. your guess, I was not finished with oh, what okay, I was sorry. Everything else I read back in 1995 around then, they couldn't match the DNA. They probably could find something now, so if Stephen Fortin ever does get his new trial, he better be careful because he'll probably get convicted again. Yes. But, you know, he's in prison for life, and mm -hmm. he's got nothing better to right. do than keep filing appeals. What so, else are you going to do? But, you know, you're right. That's what I'm thinking. They must have, obviously, I couldn't find anything. And in the interim, I'm thinking for the second trial, they must have tested DNA. But David Crook said that back then, too, it's the way it's the way someone says it when they say it was inconclusive. Right. You can kind of say, well, it could have been him or something. Right. I don't know why he said the DNA match because back in 1995. Right. They and maybe there's didn't. stuff that just wasn't in the articles. You know, maybe some reporter writing the article was confused about DNA and didn't know how to write about it. And the editor said, that, I'm just taking this shit out of the story. I know that's true. <laughs> that could know, be too. I mean, <laughs> so yeah, he's a piece of shit. And I wonder another... if he has, he could have, I mean, I don't know because he was 30. So maybe he hadn't, but he, if Vicki Gardner would have died if that backup guy didn't show up. Right. She would have been on the side of the road. And, and maybe those were just his first two victims, but he would have kept doing those it. those were the two that were connected. That's and who knows right. how many others were out there that weren't. Well, because he, we know how law enforcement, especially back then, wasn't sharing info. The internet wasn't that that's big. That's true. And if he was hiring sex workers or, or doing it someone right. like and that, it, you wouldn't oh, know. And if somebody had decomposed, there wouldn't be the similarities of evidence, the bites Ugh. on the chin. The other thing is, too, it shows once again, is how dismissed kind of domestic violence is. Yes. And that nobody said, hey, here's a guy that night who was strangling his girlfriend, who beat the shit out of his girlfriend, and lives right in that neighborhood. Maybe he's the kind of guy. Like, domestic violence is I know. Is and it was right around, it was right. only an hour before. Right. Right. You would think that, but I don't think, even now, I don't think that connection gets made that somebody who's that, you know, a domestic abuser like that is someone who could easily go out and kill someone else. And, and then the thing is, you look so many violent crimes, so many murders of strangers and mass shootings and stuff, there's domestic violence that leads up to it. I know. And yet they're still not connecting the pieces. That this guy's a psychopath who's gonna who can hurt people and he's much more likely and to he didn't he didn't care. I mean he right. Vicky I mean um, Melissa Padilla it was on a busy I mean right? even though it was eleven thirty at night, it's a busy area right. on a summer night. But he probably and he didn't was give gonna a shit. look inside of He those. just grabbed Right. And then, and Vicki Gardner, she had already called for backup. I, I mean, know. she's a state trooper, for God's right. sake. And he just, he didn't give a shit. Right. I mean, he's a, it just, a, oh, ah, God. Yeah. Well, so I'm glad anyways. he's in prison. Yes. There's so so you got to be surprised for a few minutes. Yeah, no, that was good. I like that. I'm glad you did that one. Okay. Yeah. And so how about some recommendations? Okay. <laughs> We're just doing one this episode and then one another episode to kind of spread them out. 
Mm-hmm. Less work for us, more episodes for you guys. It's a win-win. So it's my turn. Yes. I can't wait. Well, neither can I. <laughs> I watched, with not high expectations, the new Netflix Unsolved Mystery series, and I ended up binging it in two nights. Ooh, and but let there's me, no Robert Stack. Let me tell you, folks, there is not. This is not your mama's Ma- <laughs> Unsolved Mysteries, which was our Unsolved Mysteries. Although it's I funny, in the Robert very, Stack. very beginning, in the beginning, like, credits, just for, in the very beginning, there's, like, this very flash of a silhouette of a guy standing yeah. there. And it makes me think. And I didn't go back to watch any of the old ones to compare. I used to watch the old ones sometimes. I did, too. But I want to say that it's there's only six episodes they're all an hour long it's on netflix it's good i'm gonna do my review now so you'll see oh good and we might as well just get right into the review yes so reenactments yes which i think they i think the original unsolved mysteries is the original reenactment og of reenactment yes okay well i'm taking away half a point because They do have them. They're not bad. Most of them are those ones where it just kind of shows some, like somebody saying, this is what happened the day that led up to when he died. I was packing a suitcase, blah, blah, blah. So it just kind of shows these general things and doesn't really show the people's faces. They they made a effort to get people who look like the people a little Uh bit. And the reason I'm taking away half a point, and and there are some of the six episodes where they're absolutely necessary, and I'll get to that later, but I don't feel they're that necessary in some of the episodes in that they kind of rely on them when they don't need to, but they're not horrible, but that's why I'm taking away half a point. Okay. Narrative cliches. No, there are no narrative cliches because there's no narrator. There's no Robert Ooh, Stack. Aww. There's no Dennis Farina. Okay. There's no whoever oh, that third yes, person Dennis was. Farina too. There's, I there's remember no his narration. Name. There's there'll be a thing with words every once in a while. A when thing you with it. words. <laughs> I can't think of what the technical term is, but you guys know what I'm talking about. With no narrator, you get no narrative cliches. Yeah. Okay. Racial gender stereotypes. There are not. In fact, Ooh. one one of them is obviously a racial crime, and it handles it in a and really really well. And I'll get to that when I get to storytelling. But there are no racial or gender stereotypes okay. because, again, too, as we've said before, usually what you get those when we're talking about documentary with a narrator. I mean, they're more prevalent when we're talking about books and things with a narrative. You know, yes, exactly. Than- Lack of good visuals. There are great visuals, uh, some better than others. Of the six, five have to do with murders. The first one is a case I I had never heard about, and it was really interesting. And it was a guy who supposedly jumped off a roof of a hotel in Baltimore for no good reason. But the thing is, he had recently got married. They had a wedding video. They had lots of photos. And in all six of the episodes, when they had home movies and video, they used a lot of that stuff. Oh, good. And it was used well. It was done very well. Very good. Uh, Missing pieces. I'm going to take away half a point for missing pieces as well, because... Part of it is me just wanting to know more because the cases are so interesting. For instance, there's one 
where my mind just went. There's one, it's funny, the one that isn't about murders is about, I don't want to give away too much because, yeah, but it's about this UFO landing, or not landing, but beaming up of several people in Western Massachusetts in 1969. Scoff, if you will, but it was really well done. But the only thing is, like, this one girl, like, she was in a station wagon with her sister and her parents and stuff, and her dad wanted to chase the UFO, and she got beamed up, and then when she got let down, she was left near where their car had been, and she had to walk home. And I'm like, okay, so... And she said, like, her sister and a boyfriend she had at the time were the only ones who kind of believed her. And I'm like, well, her parents saw it happen, even if they're not alive anymore, like, because this was 50 years ago. Did her parents have any reaction to her not being in the car and then walking home? Like, there were questions like that on that one. Mm -hmm. And maybe there were one or two other episodes, too, where I had minor questions about where, and I know they had to fit everything into an hour, but... And maybe it's just my need to know details about things sometimes, but where it's like, okay, but what about this thing? And none of them did it wreck your ability to understand the story or to understand what they were trying to say. But I just felt there were a couple little things in different episodes that did need to be fill in. So that was half a point. Inaccuracy and acronisms. No, none. None at all. Not at all. And you'd expect, like, it was t- four of them were in, like, 2004, 2005, 2006. They were all made last year, obviously, mm-hmm. but um, one was in 2011, and then the UFO one was in 1969. And it's funny, some of those people were my age, like this one guy who had, like, the old long hair mullet um, <laughs> was is, like, exactly my age and stuff. And the way they talked about things going on in 1969 were the way things were in 1969, okay. which was good. They had and they had a lot of home movies and photos from them, so you know there were none. Okay, storytelling. Very good storytelling. Very Ooh, good. I can't wait to. Watch Very it. good. Yes, to the point where it's superior. It's on more of a level of documentaries like The Innocent Man. And the confession Ooh. killer and things like that, rather than your just standard true crime show. I didn't think to start looking till about two or three episodes in, but there were different directors. It, there weren't six different directors, but different ones. But in every single one, they let the story unfold. They didn't slam you with all this information at the beginning. They let you like learn who the people were and kind of learn what happened. And they would surprise you. I, I'm not saying, ooh, a twist that changes everything. Yeah, but, it wasn't like yeah. that bullshit. Once you learned enough about something, they'd bring something else in. And a lot of it, that has to do things. with no narrator, too. Right. It, no narrator. Yeah. But also, they didn't feel it was necessary to front load a shitload of information. Yes. Like, you know how I'm really annoyed with 48 hours, like this season and last season, where the first five minutes or three minutes or whatever, they just bang whiz through this entire story. Mm-hmm. And then they slowly, redundantly kind of draw it out. With these, the way they start presenting the story, like they have where they have just people talking and they get you used to Mm -hmm. kind of what's going on and you don't know everything that's going on. And then they, the way they just layer it in every single episode is just so well done. You know, it's, and I know a lot of people think I may emphasize stuff like that too much, but I am a, you know, a writer and I how things are structured, even if you're not paying attention to it, it makes a difference in how the story affects you and how you perceive the story. Mm-hmm. 
And it's it's just the storytelling is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Freshness. Very fresh. Very, very fresh. I would say out of the six, there's one I was familiar with only because the podcast I want to say Case Files did it. It was a French family where this isn't necessarily a spoiler, where the father did it. And this may disappoint those of you who don't want to have to pay attention for an hour, but the the French one was in French with subtitles. Ooh. It took me a little while. It seemed familiar to realize it was the same one Case Files had done because they told the story differently and much more clearly. No offense, Case Files. But I would say, I think I'd vaguely heard of the UFO thing as well as many other UFO things. The other ones, the the sixth one, the last one, I had possibly seen another show about that hadn't done it nearly as well and didn't have a lot of memory of. But all, all six of these are stories that will probably be new to you. Um, told in a new way. The UFO one was, I would say, the toughest one because they had to rely on these people talking now and then just old photos. And that's the one that had to rely on reenactments the most. And the one I would say reenactments were necessary (laughs) because nobody's got a cell phone video of the UFO coming down. But they they did the reenactments really well on that. It was very freshly told. It was, I'm a UFO cynic. But Mm -hmm. I believe these people, and every single one of them, even if it's a story you may be familiar with, are told in ways that will be new to you. Yeah. Okay. Repetition. No. No. The stories are well told. They're not redundant. They're not repetitious. They give the viewer some credit for paying attention, and they don't feel they need to keep going over things. You know, there's a little bit sometimes of the same photos being shown or whatever, yeah. but not in not in a desperate kind of way, but more in a way that works with what the story is telling you. Okay. And beating the drum. No drum beating at all. No drum beating. Mm. People are telling their stories. They're unsolved mysteries. In some of them, it's obvious who did it. In others, it's a mystery. And... They tell the story. They let the people tell the story. Like, even the UFO one. You don't come away saying, these are crazy people banging into <laughs> us. At the, you All the stories are really genuine people telling the story, telling their story well. And there's no... Again, a lot of times, too, beating the drum comes with a narrator. Especially, yes, you know, death exactly. penalty type things and stuff. But this, no, none of it. Okay, so what's your final score? Nine. It's the strongest nine. I oh. I was maybe it's because I was just expecting it to be. Yeah, and not that I have like an, cheesy, a, a little cheesy. You know, I had watched Unsolved Mysteries over and over, and and I was expecting it to be like that. Only a twenty first century version. Yes, and so I think part of my feeling for it was I was so pleasantly surprised i was the first night i watched i was gonna watch one or two and go to bed i think i watched four and then i watched the the other two last night and it made me want more because they're just really good stories really well told and you know now that we have the internet they don't have the bank of phones (laughs) you know like when it first started you know call now you know and everything but they do have you know if you know about this call and it'll be interesting to see and i want to say like the racial one which took place in kansas 
even that, you know, getting to the, like the beating the drum stuff, and nobody has to say this black kid, you know, it comes out kind of slowly. You, you realize before anybody is saying it, this is a black kid in a very, very white area. Yeah. And, you know, and then later, and it particularly other black people bring out the racial stuff. And it was obviously made before all the stuff going on now. But it's, it's done in a way that you're like, yeah, right. This is what happened. But they let you come to your own conclusions on it. It's just, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. I want Ooh. I want more. And not that I didn't enjoy the old Unsolved Mysteries, <laughs> but it, it's, it's a high quality documentary oh, making. Well, thank you. Yeah. Very good review. I can't wait to watch it. I actually started watching it earlier today, but I only watched the 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 beginning of the first one. Yes. And that one's interesting. Like, I have, once you watch it, we'll have to talk about it because I have a theory about what happened. Okay. um, uh, And I have one little just mini recommendation. It's not a, just a two sentence. Um, People, if you're looking for a good book to read, Lawrence O'Donnell's Deadly Force which he wrote in 1984. His father and brothers were lawyers and they defended, they represented in a civil suit the family of a black guy who was killed by the Boston police, even though it was written in 1984 and he has a 2018 forward in it. It could be yesterday. And, Ooh, I'll and read it's that. a really good, I, we love Lawrence and it's really well written and it gets into too, a lot of personal stuff and also how the law firm operates and stuff. And since our brother Billy doesn't listen to this podcast, I can say, I ordered it for him for his birthday. Oh, good. So, yeah. Which is your birthday, Which is too. in two days. Yeah, well, he'll get it in the mail. Of this of this recording. Right. So that was our show for today, and I think that I'm, it's my turn next time. Woo! And uh, I am going on vacation at the end of July. Hopefully that won't impact our... <laughs> The frequency of our well, uh, yes. Well, hope we're trying. We're trying yeah, to we're get. Trying. We I'll find something to do. Time. You know, I, I, like I was. I, yeah. I was realizing, and maybe I realized this before that, and I know Fourth of July is over, but that all three of my mystery novels have a Fourth of July theme in them, in a way. Ooh. Like, and two of them, bad things happen on the Fourth of July. So maybe I'll try oh, to find oh. a Fourth of July, a real crime, not a fake one that's in my books, to do for our next one. Maybe, I don't know. I don't want to make any promises. Okay. Well, okay. we'll, we'll see. And thanks okay. for listening. And, Thank you, um, everybody. And again, d- if you rate like us our and show, us. Yeah, give us five stars, please. Oh, yeah when I hear other podcasts say to give them five stars, I'm like, yeah, I'll give you what I fucking want to give you. you I know. know. But But I'm like, why bother to rate if you're not going to give a good rating? Well, no, I mean, three or four is a good rating. No, it's not. Okay. five. Uh, Okay, five. Uh, You're right. And you can find us at Crime and Stuff Online and on Twitter and Facebook and blah, blah, blah. Okay, and thanks for listening. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye.